0: As we hit the two-month mark of Illinois' coronavirus response, today's events remind us of something similar that happened in Chicago through much of the 20th century, starting about 100 years ago. Then as now, the nation was facing a major killer. Not COVID-19, but another disease that attacks the lungs, tuberculosis. TB is highly infectious, it spreads through the air and can destroy the lungs. Here in Chicago, TB was taking more than 3,000 lives a year, and so the city did something about it. In 1915, Chicago found infected residents and plucked them from their lives, from their homes and their families, and they sent them away to protect the public and for their own good. The destination? A 160-acre mini-city on the rural edge of Chicago. It was called the Municipal Tuberculosis Sanitarium, where the city's TB patients stayed until they got better or they died. We're going to revisit a story about what it was like to be quarantined in the sanitarium for months or years. And then I'll talk to one of the former residents about the challenges created by the coronavirus today.
1: If you sit back and say, "Okay, I'm in this. I don't like it, but it's going to be okay. I just got to hold on. I'm almost at the door. Just hold on. And after a while, we'll be okay.
0: But first, the municipal TB sanitarium operated for more than a half a century till it closed in 1974. But some of the buildings are still there, part of Peterson Park on the northwest side. And that's where questioner Lori Nader was visiting with a friend one day when they got lucky. They ran into the head of the park and got a tour.
2: And she showed
1: us all these archives, took us to the morgue, told us about the stories about the underground, how it's all connected.
0: This visit only filled Lori with more questions about the place, especially...
1: What was it like to live here?
0: Yeah, what was it like? I mean, for the quarter million patients who were treated there. That's right, a quarter million people were quarantined in the sanitarium, often for years. As late as 1974, when it finally closed. I'm WBEZ reporter Monica Eng, and to answer Lori's question, I tracked down members of a fading generation. They're Chicagoans who survived TB and actually lived at the Municipal Tuberculosis Sanitarium in its final decades. The place literally saved their lives and the lives of others who could have been infected. But it left them with indelible memories. Some horrible and some joyful. So what was it like to live at the TB Sanitarium? Well, Lil Campbell grew up on the South Side was sent to the sanitarium when she was 12. To her, it looked alien.
3: I don't know if you've seen pictures of it, but it was huge.
0: Huge. Others described it as a city within a city, full of red-brick hospitals, dispensaries, labs, a powerhouse, cottages, even a church, school, auditorium, and, yes, a morgue. And if you got sent there, it was usually because you were contagious, which meant your first stop was the contagious ward a place that terrified 12-year-old Lil.
3: I felt as if I was being locked up. So you're in a room with at least 20, 30 women. You can't sleep. You're not used to the constant coughing. And, you know, to wake up and someone says, you know, so-and-so died last night.
0: Today, we treat TB with antibiotics. But even during the 1960s, they used treatments that seem weird and harsh today, like fresh air treatments to heal the lungs these left Gloria Traub freezing in bed next to windows that were left open even in the middle of a Chicago winter.
2: The windows were always open 24 hours. That winter, that fall, put another blanket on you, they opened the windows and you laid in bed. And it was every day, and it was cold.
0: And while resting in that bed, there was no movement allowed, not even for reading.
2: They wanted you perfectly still. Some of these ideas were the... The craziest idea is now when we think about it, like that would disturb your TB germs.
0: Here's another thing former sanitarian patients can't forget, the constant tests to see if you were contagious. Like the sputum test, where they stuck a tube down your throat to collect mucus and spit from your lungs. Here's Lil' Campbell again.
3: To this day, I will not forget that that taste. It was like a, a hot water bottle tube, and and they would give you ice water so that the sputum could come up and they could take samples. So it would be almost like you're throwing up or you're gagging. And they pulled the tube out right away. To me, that was horrible. Horrible.
0: Gloria Traub recalls yet another test, something called stomach washing, that she endured every month for nearly two years.
2: You got up at 7 a.m. in the morning and you went down to the lab and a, a, a technician came and gave you a little tiny bit of oil in a long three-and-a-half-foot rubber hose. And then he'd say, Now now breathe, breathe deep, breathe deep and he'd start sticking the tube down your nose and when it got to your stomach, he was starting to take out the stomach solution that they wanted to test. Then he'd say, Okay, and then he'd just rip the whole damn thing right out of your It, it was medieval.
0: And of course T B had killed millions across the world. Something you couldn't forget especially in the contagious ward.
2: I think maybe six times somebody had a frank hemorrhage. They just suddenly started spurting bright red blood out all over the place from their, their mouth. Of course, we all made a lot of noise. Nurse, nurse. And they take the person, put them in a wheelchair, take them out. And more often than not, we never saw those people again.
0: Another thing that sticks in the minds of TB sanitarium survivors is a long list of rules they had to live by. Some of them were based on who was and who wasn't contagious. If you
3: were very contagious, they gave you a red card. If you were not too bad, they gave you a green card. If you could be around other people, they gave you a blue card. And you had to carry this card with you everywhere you went.
0: If you had that blue or green card, you could leave the contagious ward and live in campus cottages. But Gloria Traub says there were still a lot of rules. And they didn't make a lot of sense.
2: We were never, ever allowed to go anywhere with men patients.
0: There was one way around this. It was called Friday Movie Night, the highlight of the week for the non-contagious. Men and women got to sit in the same auditorium, just in separate sections. But once the lights were out, she says it was anything goes.
2: Five minutes after the movie started... The most horrible running of feet and noise and people running around meeting up their friends. Well, did you uh, tell Bill that I decided to do the show with him? Yes. Mm-hmm. And then five minutes before said? the movie was over, they would flicker the projector, and it, again everybody went back to their seats.
0: <laughs> Another rule: no popcorn or chips,
2: because it might scratch our throat so we might start bleeding.
0: These food restrictions led to smuggling.
2: Oh, I wanted a hamburger so bad. But they searched the men. And the women, they looked in your purse and they kind of looked in your pocket. So my father always stuck them down in his boot. But pretty soon the guards knew what he did. And he must have lost 25 hamburgers.
0: But food wasn't all the patients smuggled. Here's Cesar Oñate, who was there in 1972.
2: And this one guy, remember, he was a huge, big, muscly black guy. Once it got dark, he would jump the fence and jump back. He used to come back with pints and half pints of vodka, because vodka didn't didn't stay in in your breath. It wasn't that strong. You know, so the staff won't smell it.
0: Once patients got out of the contagious ward, they could go to sanitarium school, get job training, and even enjoy some recreation beyond liquor. Here's Virginia Mend.
3: I used to play croquet a lot, and then inside, scrabble. Some of the times, we got a record player in there, and I learned to (laughs) cha-cha. I made a point of dancing because I thought, maybe I'll find out if I'm really sick. If I can dance, I must not be bad.
0: Still, there were limits to the fun, especially for some patients. Will Campbell remembers a run-in with a cafeteria staffer.
3: She was in charge of the dietary staff. It was a bunch of black kids. We stayed together, and she didn't like us. So she would deliberately make us stand and wait. So we got to the point where when we come in, we would go over to the jukebox, and you could play the music for free, and we would deliberately put on rock and rock just to kind of irk her a little bit because we knew she didn't like black Music So, finally, one day, she got so pissed, she unplugged the jukebox. By this time, we're getting a little rebellious, and, you know, we could kind of feel our oats, as the older people say. So, we plugged it back up. And she couldn't do a thing about it. You know, that was our triumph
0: that day. Folks remember these little triumphs amid sanitarium states that could last for years. Relapses were common, so even people who felt fine had to stay on for monitoring. But eventually, some could make trips home. Gloria Traub remembers visiting her husband and eight kids.
2: You were allowed a pass to come home for 24 hours. And I was home, and I got pregnant. So they said, well, okay, you're going to have to stay here and have your baby. I said, oh, no, sir, I I can't do that. My children do not know who their mother is. They think one of the grandmothers, they call her mother. I said, I have to go home.
0: In the end, these survivors did go home. With rest, fresh air, antibiotics, and sometimes surgery, they beat TB. But many, like Lil, hold on to mixed feelings.
3: It was a good thing because it protected the population. And in retrospect, it saved my life. But the things that I went through... I wish they did it differently. But does the end justify the means? In this case, yes.
0: So there you have it. A glimpse into the world of a quarter million Chicagoans who passed through the gates of Chicago's municipal TB sanitarium. And here's one last thing they all experienced. No medical bill. Literally zero dollars for years of treatment, housing and food. This last point really moved our questioner, Lori. And here's why. A hundred years ago, Chicagoans came together and voted. They voted to pay for all of this care through city taxes and to cover everyone.
2: It
1: was a miracle is how I look at it. And we don't have that anymore. If you're sick, poor minority, you're not treated like human beings. Um, It should not be the end of your life if you're sick and poor. And we, we had it right. I don't know why we don't have it right anymore.
0: This week, I got back in touch with Lil Campbell, who, remember, lived in the sanitarium for three years in the 1950s. We talked about what it was like to live through the tuberculosis outbreak and how it prepared her for the pandemic we're all living through today. She started out by telling me about her TB diagnosis.
1: I was 12, and um, I think my teacher was one of the persons that began to notice They didn't let me go back to school. It was a very hush hush disease. You didn't, if you had it, you were considered uh, very uh, lowly, very uh, unclean. People kind of frowned on you. It's like you were dirty. I do, above all, the thing I do remember most was the doctor who treated me. And he said to my mother, I've seen this before. My mother was just heartbroken. She was just very upset. Uh, She didn't cry. She wasn't, but she was very visibly shaken. He let me spend one last night with my mother and my brothers and sisters. She had to bring me tomorrow that next morning, which is what she did. We didn't talk the whole way. We we said nothing. Uh, She just looked out the window and so did I. There was really nothing much to say. I was there from, the t- from 12 until I was 15 years old.
0: Under the stay-at-home order, we're able to still go outside and take a walk. But for some of the patients at the sanitarium, depending on their stage of recovery, this wasn't permitted. Lil wasn't allowed to go outside and take a walk for some of that time. She couldn't even socialize with other kids. And even the nurses kept their distance, afraid of getting sick. It was a hard way to grow up. But little things kept her going, like getting letters in the mail.
1: i never forget my dad. He sent me a poem. It was called If, and I think it's by Kipling. And he wrote it out. And i never forget it. Um, Let's see, my favorite part, if you can dream and not make dream your masters, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. Those, I think, to me, that was the part for me at that moment, because at that time I needed encouragement. I needed to know what I was going through was not the end of me. And that's what people need to do now. Just just be still. It's, this isn't gonna last forever. It's, It's gonna get better. If you sit back and say, okay, I'm in this. I don't like it, but it's going to be okay. I just got to hold on. I'm almost at the door. Just hold on. And after a while, we'll be okay. But we'll never be the same. You're never the same after a terrible illness or a, a problem or a hurt or loss. You're never the same. And you're not supposed to be the same. That's the point. But it's all in how you allow it to change you.
0: For Lil, the change was profound. She says the experience at the sanitarium inspired her to go into the medical field, where she worked as a nurse's assistant and a certified medical assistant. Looking back now, she sees a lot of similarities between tuberculosis and COVID-19. The uncertainty, the fear, and the blame.
1: This is an enemy that we don't know. We didn't know TB. We didn't know the Spanish flu. We didn't know polio. We have all kinds of theories. People are saying, well, it's the end of the world or so-and-so did this in this country. That We don't know that. We, I mean, you, where did polio come from? Where did TB come from? I, I, it doesn't matter. It affected us to the point where our lives were turned upside down. And that's that's all it is to it. It, it isn't just us. It's the whole world. This isn't just United States problem. This is the world's problem. Wherever it came from, it doesn't matter. What we have to do, and I firmly believe this, is
0: to help each other. To help each other and be patient, she says. After all, she lived in quarantine for three years. So maybe we can do it for a few months?
1: I hear people talk about, I've got to go to church. No, you don't. No, no, you don't. If you know God, read your Bible. He says that if two are gathered in my name, uh, my mother taught us from the Bible that if you go in, go in the closet and close your door, that's a sanctuary. I don't need to be in a building to worship God. People saying, well, I want to go outside. I'm tired of being cooped up. I want to go to work, but I am looking there in bars. That's not work. Do you work there? No, you don't. That's telling me you never had any good intentions in the first place. We're Acting like we're in a barbaric age. We're mad. We, we want to blame the mayors, the, the governors. Uh, we want to stand at city halls with guns. No. It, it, and, and if you really think about it, I'm sure when other diseases came about, I'm sure people did the same thing. Same thing. Hasn't changed. Just the time and date and people. That's all.
0: One thing hasn't changed, and that's Lil. She lived through tuberculosis, and now she's living through COVID-19. And for her, it's all pretty simple.
1: The bottom line is, yes, we should quarantine. We should understand that this isn't something we're trying to take from you. We're trying to keep you from getting something. We just gotta be patient. We can't become so selfish that we just forget that we're all in this. It's, It's a boat. We're all sitting in it together. One person can rock it, and we all will drown. So we have to understand that.
0: Special thanks to Gloria Traub, Cesar Onate, Lil Campbell, Virginia Mend, Alan Lake, Mindy Schwartz, Francis Archer, and Wayne Shimp. Curious City supported by the Conant Family Foundation. I'm Monica Eng.